If you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to end the fifth chapter, the, the really our, our uh, first of three parts in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5. And what a climactic ending we will come to today. I want to read these verses, and um, I tried my best to find a reason to share a few photos with you guys into some places that we were at. So after I read uh, the section of Scripture we're going to be in this morning, I want to share a couple photos that I hope will be a reflection of how I feel or how I've responded to these, these verses that we're reading this morning. So as I said, this is a climactic ending to the Beatitudes and the teachings of Jesus to really help his people, his disciples, understand what his kingdom is all about. It says in verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of the Father in heaven, for he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends out rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Uh, these verses are probably something that you have heard in some context or another, whether through a sermon or just the common language of what it means to try to be a good person. Because Jesus saying these words have echoed ever since. And they've infiltrated all sorts of different areas of the culture. Surely you've heard the phrase, to go the extra mile. As a way to say, to, to be a good person, to be a kind person, to be a loving person. And surely you have heard this idea that Jesus comes onto the scene and preaches a message of love that goes so far that he wants to apply it to evil people and enemies. Love your enemies is a very common way to encapsulate the teachings of Jesus. And yet when you take time to meditate and to study and to not just look at it, but to try to live it, it becomes something that is so much more than a phrase and it becomes almost a daunting, a, a, a weight that when you think about actually doing this, you begin to understand the fear of God. You begin to understand what it's like to feel this sense of unworthiness towards the task. And so allow that introduction to introduce my first photo to share with you. I want to show a picture. We were just the last place we were at before Boise was a little place called Moab in Utah. I'd never been before. It was incredible. Uh, you drive in and there's just these 
amazing rock formations and, and cliffs and beautiful red rock and then these little streams where water has burst forth and it is awe-inspiring. And you can, if you've never been to Moab, maybe you can relate to seeing some other beautiful uh, scene of nature that you got to experience, whether it be the redwoods of California or the Grand Canyons. Um, for me, and here's another picture uh, coming up. This is a picture of Niagara Falls. This is, the, this is the farthest apart that we got from Moab to Niagara Falls. And I want to share these two and then this picture specifically because there's a difference between viewing something from afar and then getting up so close to its beauty that it terrifies you. And that's what this picture is. <laughs> My kids were so excited. We're, everywhere we went, we tried to give them a little preface of where we were going. We saw some beautiful things on this trip. We got to see the ark, which is incredible. We got to see glorious parts of nature. And all of them were inspiring and exciting to get to go see. But there was a couple moments where our kids were so excited to get there because you get out of the car and we, we were telling them stories about these places. But when we got to both Moab and Niagara Falls, the beauty turned into fear. It's like you see Moab from afar and it's like, man, I want to go see that. And then you look at it and you're looking down and you think, I want to go back to the car. And when you look at the face of my young daughter at this, in this picture, you'll see the, the beauty and the fear altogether, because she's running with me to go see it. Niagara Falls is a feat of God's creation. You look at it from afar, and you can't help but to just be inspired. And if you get too close, you tremble. And you can see that in her face. In fact, I told my wife I was going to share this. She said, like, no, don't look at her face. I said, that's the exact point. <laughs> this is the passage of scripture that I just read to you. It is so beautiful from afar. Don't you love the Lord that we follow, that we have chosen to give our lives to and to study every week, to listen to his words and think, that's our Savior, that's our Lord? He says that there is a, a love that goes so far beyond our understanding and comprehension, and he says, apply it to enemies, and we think, that's our Lord. How amazing and incredible is Jesus. And then he says to the disciples, come with me. Now I want you to do this with your life. And it's like coming to the, the top of Niagara Falls and thinking, it's beautiful from afar. But when I get too close to this, I want to turn back. I want to tremble. And this is why we're like at the top of the mount now. We're at the top of the pinnacle of the Sermon on the Mount. Because at the bottom, remember, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. We think, cool, someday I'll be poor in spirit when God really breaks me. And he says, keep reading. Because where I am taking you, I'm going to take you to a place where you will tremble at your knees at the thought of actually following me. The thought of actually living out Matthew chapter 5, not just from the sanctuary's view like we have this morning, how beautiful Jesus' commandments are. The constitution of the kingdom is to say, love the evil person and the enemy. What a beautiful statement of Christ, especially when he's living it out on our behalf. But then he says to us, follow me. You do it. And this should be a verse that brings us to that place of poor in spirit. As if to say we get so close to Jesus this morning that we start to tremble at the idea of actually doing this. And this is why blessed are the poor in spirit. Because in your poverty of spirit, you now not become someone who is interested in Jesus, but someone who needs the spirit of Jesus in you to do what he's calling you to do. So this morning, I'll do my best 
to try to put into a sermon something that is as beautiful and terrifying as, it's like trying to take a picture of Niagara Falls. In fact, there's another lesson in the picture I showed you because you can see Winnie's face trying to get a picture of Niagara Falls. You can't take a picture of it. And in the same way, you really can't encapsulate and, and try to fit into 30 minutes of sermon what God is calling you to do to be his representative on earth. This is something I'm drawing you into that you will only experience when you get up close and personal with it with your own life. So in my best effort, I've tried my very best to break this down into three ways that we can think about applying this to our life that we might just get close enough to it that it terrifies us enough to worship God. Because that's what ultimately happens when you come to these places in God's creation. It terrifies you enough to say, how great is our creator God that made the cliffs of Moab and caused Niagara to fall in a, in a wondrous roar and causes his people to love like he loves. A, an inspiring, terrifying moment between God and his people. So the three ways we can break this down. The love of enemies is the pinnacle of the mountain. It's the cliff upon which we stand and we look down terrified. And it tells us three things in this passage of scripture. One, you will have them. <laughs> that's a, that's a, this is just a reminder for us in our day and age and our culture that we are not called to be so in love with God and so insulated by his protection and provision that on this side of eternity, we have now freed ourselves from the tension, the conflict, and the pain, and the burden of enemies. So if you're trying to live your life that way, there's a reminder this morning that says, you actually will have them. God wants you to come to the cliff. The second part is you will love them according to the spirit in you. He says, by this, you will be manifested as the sons of God, as people, not all of you, but of those of you who have accepted the spirit of God in you, you are now representatives of God. You now represent his love to the world and your love will be a reflection of God's love, which is a love that applies so much farther than we would want it to apply without God in our lives. So you will have them, you will love them. And, and this is maybe the edge of the cliff. It says, therefore you will be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. There is part of your completion in the, in the way that God is maturing you to be like Christ by indwelling his spirit in you and calling you a son of God, part of your process of sanctification or him maturing you or him completing you or him perfecting you is seen in how you respond to the evil person and to the enemy of your life. You will have them, you will love them, and you will be perfected by them. There's the cliff. Don't we wish that wasn't true? So let's look at the first idea in this uh, Jesus doesn't actually state it in this passage of Scripture, but he does it in others. Uh, in this passage of Scripture, he just takes it as a reality of the fallen world that we live in. He says not to resist an evil person, and then he also says to love your enemy. Built into the program this morning is the reality that as Jesus talks to his disciples and he pulls people into a closer relationship to himself— as a disciple of Christ, as a follower of Christ, you will be met with opposition in this world. It's not a point that I'm going to belabor longer than I have to. 
other than what Jesus has already told us. He says, don't be surprised when you have trials and when you have tribulation, when trouble comes to you in this world. Don't, don't act like it's this shocking thing to your life. Like, God, you've abandoned me because now I have trouble and tribulation, and it's coming through the words and the actions and the behaviors of people. Don't be surprised by that. John 16, Jesus says, take heart, I've overcome, but don't be surprised. He says in Luke chapter six, which is maybe more acute to where we're at this morning because Luke six is the gospel of Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, woe to you when all men speak well of you. So did their fathers to the false prophets. So this morning, there's a warning of scripture coming from the words of Jesus in a similar setting in the gospel of Luke that says, be really careful when you live your life as to not offend anyone. Be really careful when you live your life and everyone that you meet hears your message, hears your purpose, sees how you're living your life and they think, fine by me, doesn't offend me, we speak well of you, you've done nothing to offend our particular worldview. Jesus says, that's not good. That's not good. One of the reasons that's not good is because we live in a world that is full of conflicting purposes. We live in a world where there's all sorts of different passions applied to different goals and they conflict all the time. And so Jesus says, if you're really living for him, you're living as a light in the darkness. Thank you, John Whitaker. And the darkness is where evil deeds are, are, are happening and the light exposes that. So if you're actually living as the salt and the light, you are living against the darkness of this world and you should have people say, turn the lights off, I'm trying to do stuff in the dark. Be quiet, I don't wanna hear the message. If you don't have that happening, then your light is pretty dim or it's non-existent. He says the student's not greater than the master. They persecuted me, they will persecute my disciples. So the first built-in lesson to this is that the people of God living in an insulated culture, as we are, need to remember that we are not called to live as allies to the entire world. It's a very popular phrase right now. I will be an ally to you. You be an ally to me. There's your tribe. Here's my tribe. And we will always do anything we can to work in alliance. That's not the gospel. The gospel comes with good news and the truth will set you free, but first it will make you mad. And we're not called to be friends of the world, we'll be called to be friends of God, and the world has rejected God. That's just the reality. I love this quote by, not a theologian, but sometimes street level people have some really good wisdom from God. This is a man named Mike Tyson, and Mike Tyson is, uh, He's street level, let's put it that way. Here's a, here's a quote that all of us should kind of just hold on to in, in, in our smartphone, digital platform, communication online day and age. He says, social media made y'all way too comfortable with disrespecting people and not getting punched in the face for it. <laughs> Thank you, Mike Tyson. And he's right. Up until this current era of the world, which is like thousands of years of human history, you knew who your enemies were because there was no such thing as hurling insults and then just turning your computer off or blocking people or unfollowing people and, and, and not actually having to deal with the tensions of humanity hitting and fighting and doing enemy-like things. Well, now we live in an insulated world and you can do things that 
make you an enemy or hurl insults at the enemy, and then you can just live as if it never happened. That's not reality. Reality is, is the gospel, we should be unashamed of it because it comes as an offense to those who are the outside. And when you speak the truth in love, people will react as if they're reacting to God in their life, which is hard-hearted, raising the fist and turning the back. Are you afraid to have enemies? Would you rather not listen to this portion of scripture because you really don't want to come up with a playbook for what it looks like to follow Jesus so closely that you run the reality risk of offending the non-believing, non-Christ following, non-God fearing, non-scripture as authority people of this world. And if I'm being honest, sometimes I'm like, yeah, I wish that was the case. And every Sunday rolls around and I think, God, I have to say this again? Like, someone here is going to be offended, but I guess thank you for proving the point. So you will have enemies, and that's okay. Christ had enemies. The, the, the second part of this is where Christ's playbook turns into something that is so different and set apart and should change the way we think about trying to avoid enemies. And the second part of this is you will love them. Jesus says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say, don't resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. This is a radical shift in the narrative of how people dealt with offense in their day. He goes on to give a, num another, uh, a number of different examples. Someone wants your tunic, give them the cloak. Someone wants you to carry their things and go a mile, go with them an extra mile. And what Jesus is doing, and he's done this throughout Matthew chapter five, is saying, here is the minimal requirement of the law. And here's what you're gonna do to take my love and go beyond the law. Because the law said, if a Roman soldier asks you to carry his things for a mile, by Roman decree, that's just part of the law. So imagine yourself, and you are a first century Jew, and you are, it's a nice Sunday morning today, and you have just enjoyed a picnic on the hills of Galilee, uh, of the Sea of Galilee, and a Roman soldier comes up, and they're a gang of Roman soldiers, and you're sitting there with your family, and he looks at you and says, hey, I'm tired of carrying my things you're required by law to, to walk enough steps to cover a Roman mile. And you have the decision on whether or not you wanna break that law, whether you wanna defy that law, or you can meet the law's minimum. And you can say, okay, because it's the law, I will, I will count my steps. I will, I will count my steps, and when we get to the end, I will, as politely and rudely as I can, throw your things back at your feet and go back begrudgingly with my family. That's the law. But there is a way that love supersedes the law. And this is what Jesus is getting at the entire sermon. There is a way that love goes so far beyond the letter of the law. There is a way that you cannot commit adultery by the letter of the law. And there's a way that you can be so faithful to your, to your wife and to your neighbor's wife that you are loving them beyond the law. Don't even lust. Don't even let your mind go there. And that is what's happening here. And by the way, Jesus is going to point out something very important for us to know about what love looks like in these circumstances. 
because he, he, he will go on to give them a seed of hope that they already know how to do this. He says to them, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? In other words, take everything that we just read in Matthew chapter five in how we should treat enemies and evil people by turning the other cheek, by offering more than what was asked, by offering the cloak, not just the tunic, by going the extra mile. And he says, you know, you already know how to do that with people you love. And isn't it true? Instead of reading these verses through the lens of how you treat your enemy, think about reading these through the lens of who you love the very most in your life. So parents, think about all of these in regards to your children. If your child insults you, which is the, the phrase here, the backhanded slap of the face, it's an insult, what do you do with your children? I forgive you, and you can insult me again, and I will still forgive you. And I will listen to all the insults as they come, and I will be here loving you after. If your child needs something from you, you don't withhold something that could bless them even more. The tunic was the undergarment, but the cloak was the warm garment. And by law, you didn't have to give up the cloak. They couldn't sue you for your cloak because somebody might freeze to death. And Jesus says, give them the warm garment too. Give it, give it, go be above and beyond the law so that they know beyond the shadow of a doubt you are motivated not by law, but by love. And if your child asks you for something, sometimes to our fault, it's our heart to give more. And same with going the extra mile. In fact, here's a, a, another picture I smuggled into the sermon because when you travel a ton with kids, you learn this lesson pretty quick. This is, I could have shown you a thousand pictures of me just carrying my kids around because... We're going places that require walking. We're walking through museums. We're walking through the streets. This is actually us leaving Niagara Falls. And my kids can only walk so far. And then they come up to me and they say, please carry me. And as a father, by law, I'm actually not required to do that. <laughs> if I wanted to show them the books, I could say, I, I'm, I'm on the books for food, shelter. I can't neglect you. No hot car in the summer. Uh, you got to have like the basic, the basic needs met. But by law, I ain't got to carry you. <laughs> but that's not what I say. I, I go beyond the law. I pick up my child and I carry them beyond even what my arms could carry. And so what Jesus is, is saying, you love those who love you back. He's saying, the world knows how to do these things. The tax collector, the pagan, in Luke chapter 6, he'll say, the sinner knows how to forgive the insult when it comes from someone within their tribe. The sinner, the pagan, and the tax collector knows how to give to those who they love and will give back. The sinner, the pagan, and the tax collector actually know how to go beyond the law for those who are within the tribe. And here is what the message of the gospel needs to go out for our day, for our church, and for our world today. The people of Jesus go beyond the tribe. They go beyond the circle by which this comes naturally to you. Everybody can do this when you apply your favorite name, your favorite person, the one that you would do anything for. You can do all these things. It's, it's, it's in you. But where God changes the narrative of human history is when he brings a different kind of love. A love that goes beyond what is natural to us, what we would do anyway. And that's where 
although I try my very best to, to avoid translation in, in original words because I trust the translators of the Bible, but this isn't a translation issue. This is actually an English problem because the word love is not a great word in our language. Have you noticed that? When you talk about the things that we love, there's a pretty broad spectrum of the way that we apply the word love in our vernacular. I went to Chicago and I got deep dish pizza and I said, I love this pizza. And then we got to the, the, very, the very peak of, uh, we got to the, the, the spot in New York City that my wife and I went to our honeymoon in and we stood under the, the, the building of the Empire State Building. I looked in her eyes and I said, I love you. And she responded by saying, you love me like you love pizza? <laughs> she could. I said them both. That's just the problem with our language. We love everything. I love, you know, being here. I love your shirt. I love the sports team we're going to watch later. I love, I love food. I love people. I love God and all of it for the same word. And so this is one of those times where we, we have to go back and say, man, if only there were more words for love, maybe we'd understand this better. And there actually are. In the original, in the original language of the Greek, there's other words, you may have heard the book, The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis, where he breaks down the different, the different ideas behind love so that we can understand what Jesus is getting at here. So if you haven't read the book, The Four Loves, if I can remember them off the top of my head, um, phileo, you've heard that brotherly love, city of Philadelphia, right? I went there, they need to repent. They've got some work to do. <laughs> That's the love that you have for the person at church you're sitting right next to. You see him every Sunday. You give him the high five. You're like, I love you. You're my bro in Christ. You're my bro in the neighborhood. Uh, you have eros. Of course, that's the romantic love that we often think about. That is the, the, the popular uh, love that is sung about and written about. It's, I, I, I love this person because uh, they're the one I was waiting for in my desire to overcome loneliness and have companionship. Uh, there's storge. And this is actually uh, in The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis. It's not one that we find in the original Greek of the Bible, but it's worth looking at because you see examples of it in the Bible. Storge is the family love. That's the love of, of me carrying my son wherever I need to because he's too tired. That's the love of, of the families that exist this morning that, that, that hope for God's best for each other. None of those loves or those words in the Greek are what Jesus is talking about now. And this is the love that will, in fact, revive a church, change a culture, and actually represent or manifest the sons of God to the day and age that we live in, and that is the agape love. The agape love, let me read you the definition. Agape love is sacrificial love given without conditions. It exists in good times and in bad regardless of changing circumstances or the influences of others. The Bible defines this love as selfless, generous, virtuous, and the greatest of the four loves. Totally apart from circumstance, totally apart from condition, and maybe the part that we need to hear the most for where we're at in the history of God's people is it's a love that is separated from emotion. 
We just need to let that sink in for a second, that God is calling us to love our enemies, to love those people who put demands on our life, who love those people who ask things for us, who we would consider our enemies. He is not saying, I want you to harbor those warm, fuzzy, hallmark feelings towards them. What he's saying is, I want you to have an attitude that is backed up with action that shows them that they are part of God's good grace. To choose to have action towards them that shows the kindness and the patience and the compassion and the long suffering of God. That is what God is calling us to at the pinnacle of the mountain. And by doing that, he says, now you are getting closer to that perfect love of God. You may have heard me share this quote before, but I think it's worth sharing as often as I can because this really is how we will be set apart. Jesus says, they'll know you're my disciples by the way that you love one another. And C.S. Lewis gives a helpful reminder that separates how we feel about people, how we emotionally want to respond towards what we're called to do according to the example of Christ. He says, do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Do I love this person? Can I love this person? How do I feel about this person? Lewis says, act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets to life. When, are you, be, when you behave as if you love someone, you will presently come to love them. And Jesus says in all of these ways, here is how you act as though you love them and the feelings will follow. We get it backwards, don't we? It's like the feelings dictate the actions. I don't feel like loving you, so you're never gonna see anything nice coming from me towards you. I'll just keep waiting for those feelings to come up. But Jesus says, do it and watch what happens. Love first and then get the results later. He says, you've heard it said, you shall love your enemy, or love your neighbor, hate your enemy. I say to you, bless those who curse you. You're offering kindness and compassion. Do good to those who hate you. That is an action behind it. When you have an opportunity to do good to someone, you do not qualify whether or not they deserve your good. And pray for those who spitefully use you. This is maybe the biggest action you can do because it's the hardest one. To humble your heart enough to go to God and instead of making your request known on behalf of your life or the people that you care about, you would spend your precious time in the presence of God praying with action and, and verbal the love that God has for other people. And, he said, and Jesus says, if you really want to get this lesson, I'll give it to you in a couple ways. One, the word, he's correcting all sorts of ways that the word was warped away from the heart of God towards unconditional agape love. And two, he gives another lesson in the weather, which is a good lesson to reemphasize because all of us live under the common canopy of weather in Boise, Idaho. Today and this week, wherever you go, you live under a common ecosystem that you will share with everyone. And Jesus says that is a picture of God's goodness broadly applied. He says this, you may be sons of the Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. You have sunrises and you have rain. And these are, 
by Jesus, by Jesus teaching, these are ways for us to see the example that God gives in what Luther called the common grace. It's for everybody. So you watch the sunrise, you, you, you wake up early in the morning and you hike all the way up to Table Rock and that sunrise comes up and the colors, I actually did this this morning, it was like a pink cotton candy blue that came up and that sunrise came up and I did not have to look around at all the valleys or all the cities or the, the houses in the city and say, God loves that person, but not that person. <laughs> It's common. It's for everybody. Anybody who wanted to wake up this morning could watch the sunrise and enjoy its beauty. And the same with the rain, maybe more acutely with the rain. Uh, I, one of the places we got to drive through was a place called Quinter, Kansas. And it was really, it's really big into harvesting wheat. And right when we got there, they were so excited because it had just rained, which is so helpful. It keeps the dust down. It's always good for crops. And I was talking to everyone. It's like, it just rained. And it rained for everybody. It doesn't just rain for the farms and the farmers who are in a really good standing with God. He says, here's rain and you all get it. Aren't we glad that we do not live in a world where rain is sprinkling down sporadically according to our goodness and what we deserve? Aren't we glad that this morning I can't tell where you're at with God based off the sun shining as you leave this place? God in his goodness gives liberally he gives the sunshine, he gives the rain, and he gives love and goodness and kindness and grace to his enemies. All of us, surely in a, in a crowd this size, there are some who have cursed God, hardened your heart to God, said God doesn't exist, said I want nothing to do with God. You are here as a nicety and a formality because you're sitting with someone who invited you here, and yet God loves you, and he cares for your life. And he allows you to breathe the fresh air of his creation. He allows you to enjoy the goodness of his sunshine and the blessing of the rain and the crops that grow from the ground because of his sovereign way that he allows all of us to be provided for. And then Jesus says, see that God? That's our God. Now you do that. You love like God loves. You love broadly and indiscriminately. And this is not a command to be a son of God. He says that you may be sons of God or the Father. This is what happens when you follow Jesus. When you actually come as a disciple to listen to the Sermon on the Mount and say, do that in me, God, you will love the people that you thought unlovable. You will love beyond feelings. You will love beyond family. You will love beyond friends. You will agape. And in doing that, you will as it will say, come closer and closer to what God is really calling you to, which is this. Verse 48, therefore you shall be perfect just as your father in heaven is perfect. To me, that scripture is like looking over Niagara Falls. You're calling me to that kind of beauty. And this is why I've broken this down in three ways. You will have them. You will love them with God's agape love and you will be perfected by them. There is something that God is doing that takes us into the opportunities to love these people that are part of the maturity and the fullness of growing into the call of your life, which is to be like Jesus. There is an incompleteness to our life when our life is limited to loving like sinners love. 
There is an incompleteness to our life and into our growth with God when we are not allowing his love to flow to places that would go so far beyond what we are willing to take it to in our natural selves. And you really want to see the gospel shine. I mean, you really want to study where the gospel has has, has come in like a grenade and, and caused redemption and revival to break out. And it is when you find the people of God crossing over the line and taking the love of God to places where it does not seem to naturally go. This is stories throughout the Bible. There's a narrative of people who are used to glorify God by the way they forgave their enemies. Think about David and he's on the run from Saul and he's hiding out in a cave. And while he's hiding in that cave, Saul himself goes to relieve himself, a detail of the Bible. And David has an opportunity to kill him or to spare him. And what does he do? Man, what a moment that we have in scripture when David just takes a piece of his garment and says, I could have taken you, but I didn't. As you try to kill me, I show you compassion. And I read that and it's like, God is so amazing the way he highlights stories to give himself glory. Think about Joseph. He was betrayed by his brothers. Remember he had those dreams as he was a youth? He had these dreams that someday his brothers would bow down to him and they hear about these dreams. They're like, really? How about this? How about we try to kill you and settle for selling you into slavery? That's what we'll do with those dreams. And after years of of those, of those uh, decisions that his brothers made, just causing burden upon burden on Joseph's life, thrown in prison, accused of, of rape, uh, just these challenges to his life. Ultimately, God uses all of those to bring him to second command in all of Egypt to spare God's people from a famine in the land. And how does he do it? He does it by allowing Joseph to be the person who provides for his brothers the grain that they needed and offering them forgiveness. Forgiveness, highlighting the goodness of God. Of course, we're not too far from, removed from someone in our own day that shined the light of the gospel. And it's worth looking at this man because in some ways we've lost our way in, in, in our culture, in our desire to try to love one another and try to accept people and forgive people. There's an example of someone who went before us that did this so well. Martin Luther King Jr., he crossed the line. He didn't fight, he didn't fight back. He was a man who stood on the mountain, the Sermon on the Mount, and said, this is how we will overcome. Listen to this, this quote. This quote comes after a, he woke up one morning and there was a burning cross in his yard, just a signal of, those who had evil threats against his life, those who wanted to cause him harm and do violence. It was, a, it was just a threat on his life. And he woke up that morning, he took out the cross and he offered them a prayer. He prayed for them and he blessed them. And he lived out Matthew chapter five and all of its glory and terrifying nature right in the face of persecution. And he would write something later, it says the ultimate weakness of violence is that it is a descending spiral begetting the very thing it seeks to destroy. Instead of diminishing evil, it multiplies it. Through violence, you may murder the liar, but cannot murder the lie, nor establish the truth. Through violence, you may murder the hater, but you do not murder hate. 
In fact, violence merely increases hate. So it goes, returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Listen up, America. How does Jesus respond to the hurt and the pain, to the tension, to the evil? Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. He was a man who stood on the Sermon on the Mount and he changed our world. And I believe God is causing a new generation of people to stand on the mountain, both in awe of the goodness of God and in terror of what it's actually causing us to do. And this is why I believe we are perfected in some ways by these moments, because we realize in these moments maybe better than any other, that we are not Jesus. That we do not have within ourselves, within the human design, apart from God's grace and power in us, the ability to ascend the cliff. This is a uniquely Christ thing. This is the beginning of poverty in spirit, to think of desiring to live this out. And this is the moment where we look now unto Jesus as the author and the finisher of all of it and say, God, I can't, but you did. I think about two verses that give us the example of Jesus, and there are lots. First Peter chapter two, those who reviled him, he did not revile in return. He blessed those who persecute him. Turning the other cheek, you think of him before Pilate, not opening his mouth, allowing his liars to lie. But I think of two verses. One, Romans chapter five. It says, for when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. And then it goes on to say, for if when we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God through death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. It makes it very clear that Christ is not preaching a love for enemies that is not part of his mission of the cross. Jesus loved the whole world, that none would perish, and all of us falling short of the glory of God can be qualified as enemies of God, all of us. Aren't we grateful that Jesus taught to love enemies while we were still his enemy? He died on the cross for our sin. And then I think of another verse in John chapter 15. When Jesus says to his disciples as he's approaching the cross, there's no greater love than for someone to lay down his life for his friends. What an incredible journey that those two verses will take us on. That he dies on the cross for his enemies and he lays down his life for his friends. Because when I read those, I realize that we are in both of those verses. He died on the cross for me, an enemy of God. And he laid down his life for me, his friend. He calls me both. He's cleansed me from enmity or my enemy status by taking away my sins and giving me a new creation in Christ by which I can cry out, God, you're my father, no longer living in fear, but now living as sonship through adoption. No more enemy. And now he says, I no longer call you a servant. I call you a friend. How beautiful is the gospel that dies for the enemy and gives life to the friend. And may we receive that gospel this morning. In fact, some enemies are here. 
And I want you to know that the message that God has for you, if you are still afar off, is not a message of condemnation. It's a message to say, there is nothing you can do to violate God's love. There is no sin, there is no failure, there is nothing that you've done, no lie, no, no requirement against people that has caused burden and shame and pain, that has violated the love of God in your life. He still loves you, he calls you an enemy, but he dies so that you could be a friend. That's the gospel. And those friends of Jesus this morning, disciples, followers, may you see that same redemptive work happen in your life. That you would pray for enemies. That you would bless those who persecute you. That you would take the, the approach of living out the gospel with agape love that goes so far beyond what is possible through love of friends or family. And in doing so, may you see at the feast of redemption enemies that are now friends. This is the hope that we live for. We live not by sight, not by what we can see, but by faith. And by faith, we believe that in living out this, by coming to the Sermon on Mount in an act of worship, by turning our terror into prayer, we will see the redemption of enemies. I see it all around right now. I see those of you who curse God now praising God. I see those of you who would never step foot in a church now inviting friends to church. I sit at the table this morning with friends of God, myself once being an enemy. And so I leave you with just some practical encouragement. How do you do this? How do you agape people in this way? One, know Jesus through his word. How often did Jesus have to say throughout this, you heard it said, but now I say to you. The problem with Scripture and religion and teachers and, and rabbis and priests is that the word can sometimes be manipulated by fault, by purpose, to say something it never meant to intend, it never intended to mean. So Jesus has to do all sorts of correcting. Here's an answer to that. Seek Jesus. Uh, you, we love that picture of the Brains in Acts chapter 17. They heard the word preached, and then they, it said they studied Scripture daily to make sure that it was true. I'm glad that you call this church family home. I hope that you find encouragement through the preaching. But I hope ultimately Jesus sits so far above anything that you could find in your church or through a sermon. Number two, be obedient and be faithful in prayer. That is where all of this starts. You might think to yourself this morning, this sermon was all about this person. <laughs> I use the word enemy and you're using a proper pronoun. <laughs> You're thinking, it's all about this. I know who this is about. I... Begin with prayer. Don't open your word. Don't open your mouth. Don't do anything until you've obeyed this simple commandment to pray for them. Faithfully and obediently. In prayer, you will move mountains and God will move your heart. God will change your heart. God will show you some ways that maybe you're an enemy too. Maybe some faults, maybe some reason to repent. Be faithful in prayer. Be hopeful in redemption. As you can see, we've got faith and hope and love coming out this morning. Faithful in prayer, hopeful in redemption. Here's the reality. You may be calling someone an enemy that God is calling a friend of your life. Be hopeful. Don't give up on them. The story's not over. And God's grace abounds so much farther than we think. 
It goes so much deeper than we are willing to, to comprehend or able to comprehend or willing to understand. Be hopeful that in doing these things, you will see the gospel redemption play out. And finally, be rooted in love. I love Ephesians. It says that we are rooted and grounded in love. And that prevents us from being tossed around by the winds of doctrines of this world. We're so rooted in it. Every Sunday we get together and we're like deeper roots into the love of God and the love of people, the love of one another. And now deeper roots, Lord, because now you're taking my roots all the way into enemy soil, rooted and grounded in love. In other words, filter everything and every name on your list through 1 Corinthians 13. Love suffers long for that person. Love does not envy that person. Love does not parade itself, it's not puffed up, it does not behave rudely, it does not seek its own, it's not provoked, it thinks no evil, and it does not rejoice in iniquity, but enjoices in the truth. So bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, endure all things, because love, agape love, never fails.